Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Well, greetings, Central. As you know, um, this past Sunday we canceled our services due to a uh, snow day, but we still wanted you to hear... um, Uh, God's Word as we've been going through our series, uh, our Advent series this season. And so uh, here I am in our uh, Chilliwack campus uh, recording this for you so you can watch in the comfort of your home in front of your computer or TV. So uh, um, just wanted to uh, start by saying I, I, I bet that a lot of you have already received Christmas cards this year. I know we've received probably, I don't know, a good dozen cards already this year, and it's just a form at uh, Christmas of communication, whereas we would normally use a text message or Facebook or an email. Um, this time of the year, it seems like an old-school letter or Christmas card is the way to communicate. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but have you ever had someone uh, give you a message or you've received a message or a card from someone that left you kind of scratching your head, wondering, what was that all about? Like, why did they say that in their email, in their card, in their message uh, to me? This happened actually to me uh, quite recently. Uh, Mid-November, I got a text message which said, uh, in part, if memory serves me correctly, I think that you have a birthday coming up, followed by a little uh, emoji, a little icon of a dog. And I thought, boy, that's weird. Like, what is what does he mean by that? Is he trying to say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an old dog? My birthday isn't until January. It's only November. But, oh, well, better early greetings than late greetings. So I replied in my text message in part the next day. I had to think about it a little while because I was kind of confused. I said, well, my birthday's in January, which will be here uh, in no time given the current pace of life. To which he replied, I guess... I meant you as in plural, isn't it your dog's birthday? And uh, sure enough, the day that he replied to me was the next day, November 17th, was our dog's birthday, which was kind of shocking that a friend would remember that because I certainly didn't. Frankly, I didn't really care a whole lot. Um, (laughs) uh, But then all of a sudden the message made sense that that little, that little part in there uh, about the dog was included in the message. I just didn't clue in before that. And you know, Matthew's message to us in the Bible, God's message really, uh, penned by Matthew, might invoke the same response. What is that all about? Why would Matthew include that in his opening message to us in the book of Matthew? When Matthew includes in the genealogy of Jesus, uh, Ruth, uh, Bathsheba, Rahab, Tamar, uh, Mary is understandable, of course. She is Jesus' mother, after, after all. It might leave us uh, thinking, if you're anything like me, kind of scratching your head going, why did Matthew do that? Why would he include all of that in a genealogy? Because some things in the genealogy of Jesus Christ Uh, were included that should have been left out, and we're going to see later that some things were left out that should have been included. And so to include women was unheard of in a patriarchal society. To include Gentiles uh, 
Two of these women for sure were Gentiles, possibly all four, was a definite no-no in a Jewish culture. To include Gentile women of questionable character, which several of these were, is just unimaginable in the male Jewish mind. And yet Matthew does all three. And so it leaves us scratching our head going, why? Why does Matthew do that? So let's look, uh, first of all, at the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew. And uh, I'm going to read a few of those verses as we've been doing uh, weekly. And then we're going to look at uh, one of the five women, which is the title of our Advent series uh, this morning. Just one of these. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Then let's skip down to verse uh, 16. And it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So this morning, we are going to be looking at the great-grandparents. We're going to study a little bit the great-grandparents of King David himself, who was important in the lineage of Jesus, as was Abraham. Abraham to David to the Christ, 14, 14, and 14. And so today, we're going to look at the great-grandparents, one who was the son of a prostitute, the other his wife, who was a foreign woman from a cursed nation. We are, of course, talking about Boaz and his wife, Ruth. And so uh, what I want to do, uh, first of all, is just give you a little bit, uh, a little summary of the book of Ruth. I'd encourage you to read the entire book on your own. It doesn't take long. It's four short chapters uh, in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, Joshua, Judges, uh, then the book of Ruth. So let me paraphrase the book of Ruth. Don't have time to read it all, but it goes like this. So in chapter 1, we see um, a couple. Their names are Elimelech and Naomi. And they, uh, because of a famine in their land, moved from Bethlehem and Judah. Uh, note Bethlehem and Judah. It's important in the Christmas story. They moved from Bethlehem to... Uh, uh, the land of Moab, which is a neighboring country to Israel, where there is grain available. And so they go with their two sons, and they settle in the land. Now, uh, these two sons uh, grew up, married uh, Moabite women, uh, two women from the land of Moab. Their names are Orpah and Ruth. What happens is they stay in this country for 10 years, and in the meantime... All three men in the family die. Elimelech passes away, so Naomi becomes a widow. Uh, 
And then the two sons-in-law pass away, leaving Orpah and Ruth as widows. So now we have three women who are left all by themselves without any men to protect them or to provide for them in any way. And so Ruth says, you know, there's nothing left for me in this land. Uh, she heard now that there is, uh, God had blessed uh, Israel again and that the land was producing. And so she said, I'm going to go back uh, to my parcel of land that Elimelech has left me. And so she, uh, she said to her uh, daughter's uh, in-law, who are Moabite women, she said, why don't, why don't you two stay here? It's, it's not right that you would come with me and have to live as widows. Now you're going to be foreigners in a land and uh, it's going to be tough for all of us. So why don't you just make it tough for me and you stay in Moab and um, remarry, have a life. But these uh, two sisters-in-law loved their mother-in-law so much that they wept with her and said, no, we don't want to go back. And she pleaded with them again, just go. And so Orpah stayed, but Ruth refused. And so Ruth joined uh, Naomi in the trek back to Bethlehem. That's chapter 1. Ruth chapter 2, these two women find themselves alone on the parcel of land, family land, with no one to provide for them. So the only option was for Ruth, who was young still, to go glean in neighboring fields uh, to try to get some of the harvest. They'd gone back at harvest time just to get some of the gleanings of barley so that they could have flour to make bread for themselves. And so Ruth goes out into the fields and she meets a man named Boaz who owned, who has happened to be those, uh, that field's owner. And uh, Boaz, uh, it turns out, was a close relative of Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech. And when Boaz found out that uh, Ruth and Naomi had uh, come back, uh, he was gracious, very gracious to Ruth and actually told his workers to leave some extra grain to pull some of the some of the stalks out of the sheaves that they were building and just leave them lying there for her, not to make her feel embarrassed, but just leave them so she can pick up extra grain. And he was very generous and gracious to her. And he provided for her, and he also protected her from guys uh, working out in the field who had impure motives towards the young women who were there uh, harvesting. And so he protected to make sure that she wouldn't get uh, defiled or raped or whatever. And so um, she comes home with all of this grain on a regular basis, and Naomi is ecstatic that they're being provided for, but she's extra excited that it happens to be a close relative who is providing, because that means there could possibly be a future for them. So in chapter 3, Naomi devises a bit of a plan, and she says uh, to Naomi, go to the threshing floor tonight, and what I want you to do is lay down at Boaz's feet while he's sleeping. And in the middle of the night, uncover his feet, uh, take his blanket and pull it back just to uncover his feet and lay there. And he'll wake up and, uh, and, and you just uh, tell him uh, that you're uh, his relative and he will know what to do. And so what happens is, sure enough, Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night, his feet get cold, and he says to, uh, uh, Naomi says to him, would you spread your wings over me? Uh, that's another word for the edges of your garment. Will you take the edges of your garment and spread them over me because you are a redeemer? It's the word she uses, you're a redeemer. And he said, 
Uh, yes, I am. I am a next of kin who can redeem you, but there is one closer. So go back to your mother before. And he says, I don't want anyone to know that a woman was here at night. So he, he says, take your garment and, op and open the edges of your cloak, and I want to fill it with grain. So, so it looks like you've been here for a purpose. So go back uh, to your mom with this grain and uh, just wait for me to, to tell you what's going to happen because I'm going to go talk to a, a relative who is even closer than me who has the legal right to redeem you. And so she does that. She goes home and Naomi says, okay, now we have to wait to see what Boaz will do. So Boaz goes um, to the city gate where uh, he, uh, he sits and he waits for this other closer relative to Naomi and Ruth uh, to show up in the morning. So sure enough, this guy walks into the city gate. He stops him. He calls over all of the elders who sit in the gate. And he said, look, Naomi, come back. Um, she's got her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, with her. And uh, they want um, us to buy the land so that they have a future. They want us to redeem their property so it stays in the family. They have no one to protect them and provide for them. I'm willing to do it, but you're closer. So it's your option first if you want to do it, he says to this closer relative. The guy says, sure, this is great. Um, I'll buy the land. And, um, and then Boaz says, oh, by the way, uh, the land comes with Ruth. He said, oh, well, in that case, I can't do it. Uh, because I'm going to put my own inheritance at risk. And so why don't you go ahead and do it? And Boaz says, absolutely. And he uh, takes off his sandal, which was a, a sign of a legal transaction, hands it to this other fellow, has the elders of the city witness it. They go on their way. Uh, Boaz marries Ruth. And, uh, and she then has a, a future for her and Naomi. So that's a summary of the book of Ruth. And there is significance, great significance, that Ruth is included in the genealogy of Jesus based on what happens in the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is about redemption. I've used the word redeemed several times. I'm going to tell you what that word means. But let's talk about uh, what Ruth teaches us about redemption in three different ways. And then I'm going to tie it into what that story means for us today. The story of Ruth teaches us first about redemption under any circumstance. Ruth and her sister and her mother-in-law faced desperate circumstances. There was a famine in the land. Um, there was loss. There was grief. We have three women who become widows in short time. One fairly young still, but the other's much younger. There is no one to carry on the family name or provide for needs. They were completely dependent on gleaning leftovers at harvest, hoping to stockpile enough to last the winter so that it could happen all over again. And really, as Pastor Matt said a few weeks ago, in circumstances like this, it was almost like a death sentence. These women were literally hooped. And as a result, Naomi uh, became very bitter when um, her husband died and when her two sons died because she knew the incredibly tough future that was ahead of them due to their circumstances. I want, to, I want you to hear um, Naomi's heart and how this impacted uh, her and her two uh, daughters-in-law at that time. Uh, Ruth 1, starting at verse 8. 
But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you uh, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of a, her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And down to verse 19 through 21. So the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The word Mara means bitter. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi had turned bitter. She blamed her circumstances on God for taking her husband away, for taking her sons away, and leaving her, and now just Ruth, not Orpah, in very desperate circumstances. And so we see in this story a story of redemption, because what Boaz does was life-saving. There's three different words in the, uh, in the Old Testament for redemption, and I want to talk to you about the second of those words Finding its context in the social, legal, and religious customs of the ancient world, the metaphor of redemption includes the idea of loosing from a bond, setting free from captivity or slavery, defending, buying back something lost or sold. That's what we're going to talk about. Exchanging something in one's possession for something possessed by another, and ransoming. In the Old Testament, redemption involved deliverance from bondage based on the payment of a price by a redeemer. The Hebrew root uh, words used most often for the concept of redemption are pada, which means a substitute, gal, which means to deliver or defend, and kapar, which means to cover. And I wish we had time to talk about all three, but I want to explore a little bit that second word, which is the word here that's used in Ruth. It's the word gal, which means to deliver and to defend. The verb gall is a legal term for deliverance of some person, property, or right to which one had previous claim through family relation or possession. Goal, the part participle of gall, is the term for the person who performs the duties of a redeemer. This term is found 18 times in the Old Testament, 13 of them in Isaiah, Isaiah is the main prophetic book that which points to Jesus Christ, by the way. It was the duty of a man's redeemer, usually his next of kin, to buy back the freedom that he had lost, usually through debt. An example of such redemption is found in Leviticus 25, where an Israelite who has had to sell himself into slavery because of poverty 
may be redeemed by a kinsman or by himself. Property sold under similar circumstances likewise could be redeemed, thus keeping it within the family. But what if there's no longer any men left? So here in the book of Ruth, we see that had it not been for Boaz, who was a close kinsman of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, she was Naomi's, he was Naomi's kinsman redeemer. If it hadn't been for him, she and Ruth, remember Orpah stayed in Moab, she and Ruth, both widows with no men in their lives, no husbands, no sons, to provide their daily needs, were faced with the inevitable forced sale of Elimelech's portion of the family land, eliminating and ending not only the possibility of passing down that land as an inheritance to the next generation, but eliminating their only source and their only hope of potential income, subjecting these women to a miserable, destitute life. So what Boaz did in these circumstances was incredible. It was miraculous. It redeemed them. Boaz noticed Ruth. He defended her, and he delivered her, and he protected her, and he provided for her. And Naomi, through a merciful act of redemption, resulting in one of the greatest rags-to-riches stories ever told. So we see in this story redemption under any circumstance. We also see redemption in any culture. Israelites were forbidden to marry or make covenants with foreigners. We see that in Deuteronomy 7. God said that they should not marry outside of the people of Israel. Remember, Ruth is a Moabitess. She's from a foreign land. Not just any foreign land, but the Moabites were a cursed people by God. If you explore the history, which I would encourage you to do, explore the history between Israel and Moab, you will see a very ugly and a very dark history. This is the story of Moab uh, that includes Balaam, son of Beor, who was paid off by the king of Moab, King Balak, to curse the people of Israel, but instead he blessed them. But the people of Israel who stayed in the land of Moab were enticed to participate in Baal worship. And they participated in the cult of Baal, Peor, in extreme forms of idolatry, child human sacrifice, and prostitution. They prostituted themselves with the Moabite women and the gods that they worshipped. The history was so dark and so ugly that in Deuteronomy and in Nehemiah, God said that no Ammonite and no Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. They were banished from being in the presence of God ever. And so here we see Ruth, a Moabite woman who is married by Boaz, an Israelite from Bethlehem. And I want to read for you again from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Ruth's response to Naomi, when Naomi says, No, Ruth, stay in Moab. Worship your gods. You have, you have nothing in common with where I'm going back to. So just stay, marry, and carry on with your life. And Ruth said to her in verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And so Ruth literally made a covenant with her mother-in-law, Naomi. I want to go back, and I'm going to leave my gods, and I'm going to worship your God. And so we see a, uh, um, an incredible story of, of redemption that God used um, a Moabite woman to marry one of his own people who would then be, give birth to the grandfather of King David himself. It's an incredible story of redemption. Third, this story teaches us, uh, Ruth teaches us the story uh, all about redemption at all cost. Not just in any circumstance or any culture, but at all cost. A kinsman redeemer, um, the one who was first in line, the, the oldest in the family who had uh, legal rights to uh, Elimelech's property, remember at the city gate, he said initially to Boaz, he said, I'm in. Um, I'll do the deal. I mean, if it means expanding my territory and buying land, it's a good investment. Land and property are always wise to invest in. I'll buy it. Not a problem. But Boaz says, um, by the way, the land also comes with Naomi and with Ruth. And then he changed his mind when he found that there was baggage involved. When there was a foreign woman involved, he already had his own family. The risk was just too great. And so he said in uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 6, Then the Redeemer, the one who was first in line before Boaz, said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The risk is too high. I don't know if you uh, like watching Shark Tank. It's one of, uh, it's a favorite show that I like to record and watch. But in Shark Tank, whenever, uh, you know, uh, uh, an entrepreneur pitches their business and they want investment from one of the sharks, uh, the sharks uh, immediately begin probing. Um, you know, how much debt do you have? How many sales do you have? What's the stability of the business? All of those things. And as they probe and they ask questions and they press and they press, and it's uncomfortable for the entrepreneur standing there facing the sharks, if they determine, the sharks, that the risk is too high for them, it comes with too much debt, there's too much baggage involved, they say immediately, I'm out. I'm out. And that's exactly what happened with this older kinsman redeemer. He said, there's too much risk, I'm out. And you know what? I think Boaz was actually hoping that the other guy would be out. Because it was pretty obvious, at least to me reading the story, that he was falling for Ruth. He liked her. More than that, I think he actually loved her. He was attracted to her. And Ruth has been dubbed as, as the woman uh, who went from obscurity and nobody to riches. In modern day language, hers is a true rags to riches story because of the redeeming act of Boaz. So why this significant? Why is the story of Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus. Because the story of Ruth and Boaz points to the story of us and Jesus. Because of the inclusion of Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus, her story teaches us about Christ, who is our Redeemer. He's our Redeemer, first of all, under any circumstance. In fact, it's where Christ works best, especially in difficult 
circumstances. And the lesson here for us is that God is not limited by our circumstances. And this is Matthew's whole point. Uh, Matthew, if you study the genealogy of Jesus, the way he writes is incredibly, incredibly interesting. He writes, he, he structures his genealogy so precisely that the original readers would have had no doubt what he was doing. And so Matthew, as a writer, was making the point that God is not limited by circumstances in any way, shape, or form. He includes uh, a style of writing that, um, that is called, it's actually a, a Jewish form um, of writing called gematria. It's a form of Jewish numerology. Uh, the practice within Jewish tradition of assigning uh, a, a meaning to words based on their numerical values and on the connections between words of equal value. And so if you look at the, uh, the word for David, it's actually in Hebrew, three letters. Those letters all have a numeric value assigned to them. The first letter is four, the second is six, the third is four, they total 14. David's, the name of David simply adds up to the number 14, and the Jewish people would have known this. There were, and, and so Matthew makes the connection of 14 generations from Abraham to David. And then from David to the exile, 14. And from the exile to Christ, 14. If you add up the number of those years, they're all different. A thousand, then 400, then 600. There couldn't have been exactly 14 generations within each one of those time frames. And so Matthew was being very selective in some of the things that he left out which should have been included. Why? Because the focus was on the number 14. He could have focused on uh, more significant Jewish numbers, the number three, the number seven, the number 12, but he focused on 14 because Matthew wanted to make the link of Jesus to David back to Abraham. And this is the whole point. To make his connection to David, to his Jewishness, would be kind of like one-upping the kind of logic or argument that the Pharisees used to validate their own authority. If you go to John chapter 8, the Jews they, they uh, tried to undermine Jesus' authority, saying that he was illegitimate. He didn't come from a legitimate source. And so Matthew painstakingly makes the link of Jesus back to David and then back to Abraham, because the Jews always said, we have authority, we're legitimate because we're sons of Abraham. And Matthew is making the point, so is Jesus. Jesus can be linked to David, the king of Israel, and he can be linked all the way back to Abraham. And so Jesus is legitimate, and he has authority. And oh, by the way, the lineage in the story of David isn't all nice. It includes Bathsheba. It includes Tamar. It includes Rahab. It includes Ruth. It includes some very unlikely people under some very unlikely circumstances. So David, uh, sorry, Matthew is very deliberate in the way he structures the genealogy, but you also have to consider Matthew the person himself. Matthew was a Jew, and so for him to include uh, Gentile women was, was extraordinary, really. Matthew the person, though, was not just any Jew. He was a tax-collecting Jew. 
He was a guy who probably had a five-year contract with the Roman government to collect taxes, and he was not liked by his own people. You know, it's one thing to work for a collection agency harassing people for unpaid bills and debts. It's quite another to do work for a collection agency called the government, harassing people for taxes and back taxes that they didn't pay. And on top of that, to mark up the invoice by 10, 20, 30% to cover your own expenses. <laughs> These guys were despised. In fact, there were two levels of scum in Jesus' day. The sinners prostitutes and the like, adulterers and prostitutes and thieves and murderers. And then there were the tax collectors. They had a category all on their own. And in fact, they were below the sinners. They were the lowest of the low, resulting in the lens through which Matthew viewed the world. He viewed people and he viewed Christ's work in the world and Christ's work in people. So Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, making the link to David and Abraham, um, talking about five prophecies of Scripture fulfilled in chapters 1 and 2, talking about five laws, Jewish laws that were kept by Jesus in chapter 5, makes the point that redemption is all about what Jesus can do in the middle of our circumstances. Look at where, where he was. Look at where Jesus came from. And what about you today? What are your circumstances? You know, people often blame their past for being unable to move forward. If I'd only been born in a different family. If only that hadn't happened to me when I was younger. If only I hadn't gone through that. If only I hadn't done that or committed that sin, then I'd be okay. And the story of Ruth teaches us that Jesus is not limited by our circumstances. He can take the most desperate of circumstances and redeem them. And it's where he works best. Psalm 34 verses 18 through 19 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues. Remember, the word rescue is one of the, the key words of a, kingdom, of, a, of a kinsman redeemer. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all their troubles. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, and Jesus read this prophecy in the synagogue, and he declared the prophecy to be true when he said that he came to declare good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus came to do in our circumstances, to redeem, to set free, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. We all know that Job in the Old Testament went through a horrendous set of circumstances of grief and of loss and of being despised and not understood by his friends. And yet despite all of these horrendous circumstances near the end of Job, near the end of the book, he said, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Job focused his eyes squarely on his Redeemer, as should we this Christmas, on Christ, our Redeemer. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear too dull, that it cannot hear. The story of Ruth, including 
which being included in the genealogy of Jesus, teaches us about Christ, our Redeemer, not only under any circumstance, but in any culture. As I said, Ruth was a Moabitess who came from a cursed people, and yet she was redeemed by a Jewish man who together became the great-grandparents of King David, who was in the line of Jesus. Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, trying hard in our own will and our own way to be right with God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I love the song, In Christ Alone. And one of the lines says, Sin, Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. And that's what Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, came to do, is to re release us from the curse of sin through what he came to do on the cross, on the tree. And that is why God sent him in the first place, is that he might go to the cross for our sin. And just as God is not limited by our circumstances, he is not limited also by our culture, by our past, the fact that we are a cursed people without faith in Jesus. And so where we come from or what we've done, God is not limited by, and he has literally reversed the curse of sin for us. You look in the book of Revelation and you will see a picture of heaven. And you will see a picture of every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people, Gentiles, sinners, and people who are Jewish alike, who have accepted what Christ did for them, standing before the throne of God, declaring his praises together from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every people. God is not limited by our past, by our culture, where we come from. He is a God to all people. And finally, Ruth's story teaches us that Christ is that Ruth's story teaches us that Christ is also our Redeemer at all cost, at all cost. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave everything. He gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the kinsman Redeemer. It cost Boaz a lot. Uh, what his older uh, relative was unwilling to do, Boaz did, which points to the fact that Jesus is willing to do anything for us at all cost. Ephesians 1, 3 through 9 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now get this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Christ knew the risk. He knows the baggage that we have. He knows the weight and the burden of the sin that we carry. And yet he redeemed us through his blood according to the riches of his grace. He emptied himself, as Paul wrote in Philippians. He literally emptied himself of all of his rights and privileges of heaven. And then he emptied himself literally of his blood that we might be redeemed at all cost, the cost of his very life. And so just as God is not limited by our circumstances or by our past, he is certainly also not limited by our sin. Sin has a price. And Jesus Christ paid that price. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might be made rich. And that's the story of Christmas. If you go to Revelation, which is Jesus himself giving a revelation of who he is to the Apostle John, he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined from fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered as, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so I want to ask you, how will you respond today to the message of Ruth, to the message of Christ? Are you hearing the Spirit? Scripture says that our righteousness, our own righteousness, the things that we do, are but filthy rags. In Christ, we go from filthy rags to riches. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross, he has redeemed us, he has bought us, he has paid the price. And the exchange that he gives us is our filthy rags for a brand new set of clothes that he will clothe us with, the cloak of righteousness to be made perfect in him. It's the greatest rags to riches story ever told. And I want to ask you this morning, have you made the exchange? Have you allowed him to redeem you? Ephesians chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised, up, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. His the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. It's the story of Boaz and Ruth, which is now the story of Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. There is nothing you did to, do to earn this. It is not of your own doing, Paul said. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Have you received the gift of God this Christmas? The greatest gift of Jesus is the greatest gift of Christmas is Jesus Christ. Like Ruth, it is one that will move you from rags to riches. The riches of his grace, which is of more infinite value than all of the silver or gold this world has to offer. Remember, God is not limited by your circumstances. He's not limited by your past. He's not limited by your sin. He came to redeem you. He came to extend to you grace, kindness, and his riches. Would you receive him this Christmas? This is the story of the season. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the story of Ruth. I want to thank you that Matthew included Ruth and Boaz in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which points us to your great love and kindness to us and the fact that you, Lord, redeemed us. Just as Boaz had mercy on Naomi and Ruth and literally bought them and married Ruth, so, Lord, you have, at great cost to yourself, at all cost, you emptied yourself. You gave all for our redemption. And you married us. You extended your kindness and your grace to us that, that we might be saved. And Lord, even as the, the story of Ruth, the, the elders of the gate said, may you be famed in all, of, in all of Bethlehem. So Lord, the story of Ruth and, and uh, Naomi points us to your fame, Lord Jesus, that you were born in Bethlehem in a cradle that you might redeem us, that you might set us free, that you might buy us with your blood. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you. We just simply say yes to the gift of Jesus this Christmas, the gift of God. This is not of our doing. It is by grace that we have been saved that we may not boast. And we say thank you. We say thank you for the gift of Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen.